Well, good morning, friends. So great to see you and see a nice full house today. Fantastic. Uh, and I hope you all had a wonderful summer. Those of you who've been away a lot this summer, we're glad to have some of you back. It's great to be here. And I don't want to forget those who are on our live stream as well. I know some of you are uh, tuning in this morning from where you are. We're glad that you're tuned in as well. This morning, we conclude our study on the book of Nehemiah. We've been here all summer. It's been very instructive for us as we seek to be rebuilders in this season. That's been kind of the word, is, is being a rebuilder. Even as we realize uh, that we're not at the end of this pandemic, we're somewhere in the middle, right? There's a rebuilding work to do as we take a look at what it means for us to rebuild the church in the way that Christ wants us to. So just as Nehemiah, at the beginning of this book, surveyed the rubble of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of that city, and sprang into action. So we want to do the same, and we want to do it with a similar measure of humility and efficiency and integrity and passion that Nehemiah models for us. So at the end of this book, chapter 13, the walls have been constructed, the temple's been dedicated, the law has been reinstituted, things are going well. We might expect this last chapter to be one of great celebration, right, for all that God has done to rebuild this city. But it doesn't really turn out that way. So I'm going to invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of the word today. I will uh, remind you, as we've done numerous times throughout the summer, we're going to read the whole chapter. So it's a little lengthy. Uh, I would encourage you, as always, to be active listeners. If it helps you to be an active listener, to read along with us. There's red Bibles around you somewhere. Uh, feel free to find one and read along. I'm going to read it in its entirety. So let's listen actively to what God has to say. Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned curse into blessing. When the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, the priest Eliashib, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large room where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contribution for the priests. While this was taking place, I, Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and returned to Jerusalem. I then discovered the wrong that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah, preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the room. And then I gave orders that they cleanse the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God and the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who had conducted the service had gone back out into their fields to work. So I remonstrated with the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I sat them in their stations and all Judah brought tithe and grain and wine and oil to the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses the priest Shelemiah, the scribe Zadok, and Pedaiah and the Le of, the Levites, of the Levites, and their assistant Hanan, son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful. 
and their duty was to distribute to their associates. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading the wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them at that time against selling food. Tyrants also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem. I remonstrated with the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your ancestors act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Yet you bring more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So when it began to be dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, and I gave orders that they shouldn't be opened until the Sabbath was over. And I set some of my servants over the gates to prevent any burden from being brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of merchandise, they spent the night outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they did not come in on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come to guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they couldn't speak the language of Judah. But they spoke the language of various peoples, and I contended with them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your your sons or for yourselves. Did not King Solomon of Israel sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons, Jehoiada, uh, Jehoiada, son of the high priest Eliashib, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite, and I chased him away from me. Remember them, O God because they have defiled the priesthood, the covenant of the priests and the Levites. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O God, for good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And there you go. There's Nehemiah. Um, So to begin to um, tackle this chapter, I want to introduce to you one of my very few prized possessions in life. I don't have like a lot of collector's things, but this is one of them. Oh, this is my guitar. Some of you know that uh, I I play guitar, and if you know that I play guitar, you know that I'm kind of like an average guitarist, right? Uh, I'm perfectly serviceable. I can get the job done. I'm not a great guitarist. I'm definitely no Stephanie or Steve, wherever he is. Um, But... uh, what you do when you realize, when you come to the realization that you're just an average guitarist, what do you do? You buy a really nice guitar that makes you sound better and look cooler. That's what you do. <laughs> so I want to tell you the story behind this guitar. I was, um, I played a number of, of instruments that were uh, okay. They didn't stay in tune real well. They would kind of fluctuate in performance. The, uh, the internal stuff was not real good. 
And I decided I needed a real guitar because I, I came to the realization I was average. I'm no Steve, and so um, I, I, I had to buy a cool guitar that sounded good. And um, so the, the summer before my sophomore year of college, um, I went to the Podium, which is a fine guitar store in Minneapolis. It's since closed, sadly. But it was this amazing place, and downstairs is just like a guitarist dream. It's the used room downstairs. It's kind of dusty, and, um, but just incredible guitars on the wall, and you could, you could go down there and play, and no one would listen to you. It was great. And uh, I went one August day, and I saw this guitar, and I wanted this guitar. This is a 1964 Epiphone Texan. I uh, identified it immediately because um, it's a bit of a collector's item. Uh, it's played by uh, some pretty great musicians. Noel Gallagher of Oasis plays this guitar. Steve Earle, I actually had a Steve Earle fan in the first service, if anyone knows Steve Earle. Killer guitarist, amazing. But most importantly, it was played by Sir Paul McCartney. Uh, when he recorded the song Yesterday, he did it on a model of this guitar and also Mother Nature's Son and some other ones. So I saw this guitar and I wanted this guitar, and, but I didn't have any money. So um, every time I went, I'd go every two, three weeks and I would expect to see this be gone and it was still there, it was still there. And finally in like March, I had saved up some money um, and I was dating this really great girl who ended up being my wife who loaned me some money so that I could, thanks honey, uh, so I could borrow, uh, so I could buy this guitar. And I bought this guitar and it's the only guitar I'm ever gonna need. Uh, it's, it's an awesome guitar. I absolutely love this guitar. But I also need to tell you part of the story of this guitar, too. Um, about five years after owning this guitar, I started to notice that the top three uh, strings started to go out of tune a little bit. And uh, we're living in Chicago at the time. I knew that I, this is a, a, a valuable thing. It's one of the more valuable things I own. And so I didn't want to take it to just anybody, so I took it to uh, the luthier at the Old Town School of Folk Music, if you've never been there, really, really cool place. And um, let me tell you something about luthiers, if, you, if you've never met a guitar repair person, a guitar builder, a luthier. Um, they are, I would call them the, the equivalent of like a dental hygienist for music, where when you go in and see them, they make you feel horrible about yourself, right? <laughs> just like the dental hygienist says, you, so you don't floss four times a day? Um, you, when you go into the luthier, this is, this is kind of what a luthier looks like. I just got a couple pictures of luthiers. They're usually kind of old, uh, kind of wizened. The next guy like has a big beard and, and looks like he's nice until he takes a look at your guitar and then tells you how bad you're doing. This is my luthier, actually the next one. Bruce Roper is his name. Um, and he, you know, took a look at it. Oh, 64 Epiphone Texan. Wow, that's a very nice guitar. Now, uh, I can see you don't use a humidifier. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I see that you don't store it in a, uh, in a temperature-controlled room. No, I, you know, I don't do that. Oh, I, I'm guessing that you've left this in a cold car before. Okay, yes. You don't clean it very well. Okay, whatever. Um, but he was able to diagnose that there's a crack right about here that goes up the side, uh, goes up the, 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 the head of the guitar. And um, it goes through all three tuning pegs. And he said, I can, I can fix this. So he took it for three weeks. He sanded it down. He glued it together, reinforced it. When I went to get it three weeks later, he said, hey, uh, this is, this is, this, we fixed this. It's, it's going to be good. It's a beautiful guitar. Please take care of this guitar, and I'll see you in five years. And I said, what, five years? He goes, yeah, because I know that you're not going to take care of this in the way you need to, and you're going to have to come back and get this glued every five years. And guess what? He's right. I've been back every five years um, to, get it, to get it sanded down and, and glued again, and uh, I'm, I'm 
I'm a little overdue, actually, to probably this will start going out of tune eventually, and I'm going to have to visit Bruce again, and he'll shame me again um, in a nice way. But I tell you this story because I, I think it works well with what we're talking about in Nehemiah. I would have loved to have just told you the story of how I came into possession of this guitar and make you feel like, wow, Lars is really a great guitar owner. He really gets this thing. But there's more to that story, right? I have to tell you also about the ways in which I failed in that. And Nehemiah 13 is sort of the same, right? I wish I could end our survey of Nehemiah with Nehemiah 13.3 which I read for you. It's one of the first verses I read, where the people listened to God's word, and it says they obeyed his word, and then they separated themselves as, as Nehemiah had commanded them to do. But instead, it ends with this picture of these enemies who we thought were done like chapters ago in Nehemiah, right? Reemerging. And we see the people of God who had demonstrated this wonderful commitment to the Lord then abandon those commitments and apparently forsake God. Two weeks ago, just two weeks ago, I preached on Nehemiah 10 where, where all these people in Israel were signing on the dotted line, right, of like, we will do this. We're not gonna neglect God's house. We're gonna, we will not dishonor the Sabbath. We're gonna keep the Sabbath. We're not gonna intermarry because as we talked about a couple weeks ago, intermarriage, uh, again, that's not an ethnic thing in, in, in scripture. It's, it's, a, it's a holiness thing because often, uh, all too often when, when people married outside of the people of Israel, they also took on their gods and they forsake Yahweh, right? We're not going to withhold our giving. We're actually going to give our first fruits. Well, chapter 13 tells us that Nehemiah returns to Persia as part of his responsibilities to the king of Persia. We don't know exactly how long he's gone, but we know that it was long enough for the children who were born that they're talking and they don't speak Hebrew anymore. They're speaking other languages. They're speaking other languages. They've forsaken their language. So the best guess for most scholars is that Nehemiah was gone somewhere between 8 and 12 years. He was gone. And when he returns to Jerusalem, the walls are still up. That part of his job, great job. Walls are still fortified. Uh, city is safe. But everything inside the city has completely fallen apart. The temple's being used as a personal cushy penthouse by Tobiah, who is that long-standing antagonist against Nehemiah and the Lord. The, the gifts that were supposed to be for the temple had stopped to the point where the Levites couldn't even work in the temple anymore. They had to go out and work in the fields because they couldn't make any money. People are working on the Sabbath. They're purchasing goods from all over the area on the Sabbath, which they said they wouldn't do. And they're intermarrying with, with women from Moab and, and Ammon and Ashdod, which they said they wouldn't do. And they're taking in their gods. So what does Nehemiah do? It's kind of a troubling picture what Nehemiah does, Right? He acts super severely with what's going on. He takes Tobias' furniture and throws it out. I imagine like these long steps out the temple, and he's just chucking a couch down the, down the steps. He brings back in the holy vessel. He accosts the temple officials. He reinstates the Levites. He closes the gates on the Sabbath so these people have to sleep outside, which is not a very safe thing for them to do, and says, if you try and come in, I'm going to lay hands on you. For those people who had intermarried, they had the most severe. He, he, it actually says they, that he pulled their hair out and beat them. You probably picked up on that when I was reading it. I looked at a bunch of commentaries to see if there was anyone who could help soften this act of Nehemiah. Is this like some idiom for something else? It's not. Um, this is exactly, it seems to be what Nehemiah did. That's how severely he acted. Not condoning that, I'm just telling you. Um, this, is how, this is how far he goes. And he closes the book with an account of what he's done. He said, thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites. 
each in his work I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. So remember me, oh my God, for good. Remember me. That's how this book ends. It's kind of a sad ending, isn't it? But it's also an honest ending. It's honest to Nehemiah, but it's also, I think, honest to our experience as the people of God. You see, throughout the Old Testament, we see this cycle over and over again, right? Where people make a covenant with God, and then they, they sin, they fall, they, they, they break that covenant with God through their actions. And, and then they realize the wrong they've done, and they cry out to God and say, God, please be merciful. And then we know God and his character is nothing if not merciful, right? And so he reinstates the covenant to have them break that covenant again. And we see this cycle over and over and over again to, to, to the end of Nehemiah. Nehemiah could have ended back in, in verse 3, but he didn't. And I think there's something for us to learn in that. This is the last lesson of Nehemiah, and, and it's this. Rebuilders never stop rebuilding because we are broken and we're sinful and we're in need of correction. Rebuilders never stop rebuilding because we're broken, sinful, and in need of correction. Um, I am fully aware that receiving correction is no fun. It's not any more fun for those of you, us, who have to give correction to people too. Maybe when you were a child, you heard your parents say something like, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. And you were like, no, I don't think so. I think it's going to hurt me more. But as you grow up into adulthood, maybe have children of your own, you realize that that's true. You realize that parents need to correct their children, right? Because who suffers when a, a child's behavior is not held in check? The child suffers. The parent suffers, the rest of the family suffers, the schools can suffer, the churches can suffer. Ultimately, everyone suffers because of bad behavior that goes uncorrected, and it can often lead to tragic consequences both now and in the future. It's just the truth. And now some parents can come up with any excuse to not correct their children. I've been in that place before. And I'm concerned that the body of Christ can so often be the same way. We don't want to correct one another in sinful behaviors because it's uncomfortable for us to do so. And we don't really want to be corrected because it's none of their business. It takes effort. It can strain relationships. I know as a pastor when I've had to step into those kinds of situations where I'm offering correction, I am extremely vulnerable to being misunderstood, misrepresented, just by seeking to do the right thing. And I think you know that feeling too. But this is part of what we're called to do as we are seeking to rebuild the church stronger and more Christ-like than ever before. Nehemiah encounters this situation where the people of Israel need to be corrected in a bunch of different areas. They have fallen in a bunch of different ways. And, and it would have been well within his rights to, to take this super personally, to be personally offended, right? Because they have systematically undone so much of the work that he worked so hard to try and do. So when we read about Nehemiah's actions today, they do seem harsh. But I also want to ask this question, as we look at the state of affairs of the people of God, what if, what if Nehemiah hadn't corrected them? What if he was like, I'm done with these people, or it's just, yeah, it's just too hard, I'm not going to correct them. What would have happened without his extreme measures? I think he earnestly believed that living in obedience to the law of God was the only path to blessing for the people of God and, and, and honor for Yahweh. So he cares enough about God's reputation and the reputation of the people of God to take action no matter how personally difficult it might be for him to do so. And I think this is the enduring lesson of Nehemiah 13. So I have two simple questions that I need to ask myself that you need to ask yourself this morning. How do you receive Christian correction and do you care enough 
about your fellow Christian, your brother and sister, to offer correction when needed. It's important to ask these questions because whether you realize it or not, if we as a church are not willing to give and receive correction from one another, from God's word, from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, then we're not rebuilding in God's way. We're not rebuilding in God's way. We've been talking um, a fair amount as a church about Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. We had a cool kind of Q&A session about the um, exhibit that was up in Oak Brook where you could see the reproduction of the chapel panels um, up close, which is pretty cool because if you're in the Vatican, you know it's way up in the ceiling and you have to kind of crane your neck to see it. You can actually see these up close. Um, I went with my family and there's one panel that caught my eye and it's the panel of Adam and Eve being expelled from the Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden because of their sin. Um, this is it right here. This is a, a detail of it. And what I want you to look at is look at the expression of Adam and Eve. Eve is like grotesque and sneering, right? And Adam, how would you convey that, that look in his eyes? He's almost like annoyed, right? He's like, okay, I got it. I did some stuff wrong. I'll leave. Jesus is so dumb, but okay, I'll leave. That, that's what I see when I look at Adam. I want to contrast that with a fresco that was painted 100 years earlier than the Sistine Chapel. Uh, the painter of this one is Masaccio, and this panel is the expulsion, of paradise, uh, expulsion from Paradise. It's in the Brancacci Chapel in uh, Florence. I was able to walk into this chapel uh, on a cold January morning. I was the only person in there. And after a couple minutes of, of looking at this, this panel, uh, I just wept. Look at their faces. Look at Adam. Confronted with his sin, what's his expression? Face in his hand. He's weeping freely. And look at Eve. I think that's one of the most stunning things that's ever been painted. Look at Eve. She is despondent, throwing her head back deep in grief. I want to ask a question. How do you deal with being confronted with your sin? Whether it's by God's word, it's by a sermon that's preached, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, friends here. Is it like Michelangelo's Adam and Eve where it's like, okay, I get this is so dumb, but all right, whatever. Defensive, annoyed, unreflective. Or is it like Masaccio's? Grieved, humbled, reflective. We need to be more like the latter or it's going to have disastrous consequences for us. Part of the reason why this is hard for us to give and receive correction is because we, we live in a society that is not generally reflective and doesn't value humility too much. As, uh, just an example of this I've been thinking about. Several years ago, there was a movement that came out of the Albany Park neighborhood in Chicago. If you've seen these signs before, um, maybe you have one in your house. Hate has no home here. It's in several different languages. And this is a sign that's, that's meant to indicate in the midst of a, of a culture here that's so divided, right, where we see stories of hate in our news cycle so often. It's meant to convey this sense of, of, of inclusion, uh, care, tolerance, just to communicate we're, we're resisting hatred. Um, if you have one of these, I trust that that's the reason why you put it up, and I get that. I, I need to tell you, I was always uneasy <laughs> with this when I thought about having one in my yard, which is strange because I agree with this sentiment, right? I agree with this. I don't want my home to be a place where hatred has a haven in any way. But it took me a while to figure out why I was so uneasy with this, and it's more of a theological reason than any, certainly anything political or social. It dawned on me that the implication of this sign is this. Hatred doesn't exist here. It's not in our home. It's not in our hearts. It's in other people. Hate is outside my house. People who are outside of my house. 
in my world, not in here, out there. It's an externalized vision of evil and sin that has so deeply shaped our relationships. I think it adds to a toxic political environment that we find ourselves in. It's the other people who are hateful, who are intolerant or racist or sexist or homophobic or Islamophobic or whatever. It's not me, not here. It's out there. It made me think about when the, when the London Times posed a question for readers to write in, what is it that's wrong with the world? They received a lot of responses, but none better than Titan, G.K. Chesterton, who said, dear sir, I am G.K. Chesterton. You see, biblical humility starts with the confession that God is right and we're wrong, <laughs> that sin and evil and hatred in this world is not something out there, it's in here, full stop. Paul writes in Romans, let God be true and every human a liar. Guess what? Every human includes you, no matter what you do in your homes. That includes every single one of us. So are we humble enough to see ourselves as part of the problem? Or is it just out there? Is it Michelangelo or is it Masaccio? Again, if you have a sign like that, no shame. I, and, and you should have it in your yard if you want to. I understand the sentiment as a loving one. I'd be more comfortable with a sign that said this. I don't know that anybody would understand this if they walked by my house. <laughs> but I'd be more comfortable with this. You want to know why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is always going to confront me with the reality that I'm broken and that I need to change. And because we're the church, Christ's body on earth, God is going to give us constant opportunities to both receive correction and give correction from God's word, from the Holy Spirit, from one another. Sometimes we're going to be convicted by God's word just by opening it or from a sermon here, a small group setting, even a Christian friend who says, I see something in your life that I just need to call out right now. That is not the sign of a dysfunctional church. That's the sign of a healthy church. A church that is rebuilding in the mode that Nehemiah puts forward to us. That last lesson should be ringing in our ears. Rebuilders never stop rebuilding because broken, we're broken, we're sinful, and we're in need of correction. That's the lesson here. And I pray that we would have the courage to be the kind of community that loves and cares enough about one another to give and receive correction. I could have been super easily offended by Bruce the Luthier, right? This guy doesn't know me. Where does he get off telling me what to do? I don't have the kind of money to have a temperature-controlled chamber in my house for my guitar. I don't like his attitude. I'm going to find a luthier that's just going to affirm me as a guitar owner and not ask any questions and not make me feel bad about myself. But do you know what would have happened if I would have done that? I would have an instrument that's unplayable. I would have made an investment in, in a fine piece of art that I would have completely squandered, Right? So yes, I didn't take care of my guitar as I should have. I still don't. I leave it in the trunk in January every once in a while. I don't use a humidifier. I leave it out of its case. I don't clean it properly. It's got grease underneath it, whatever. I, I waited too long to bring it in. I'm sorry, Bruce. I'm sorry. Can you help me? Can you help me? Maybe as you get to the end of Nehemiah and you hear those last words of Nehemiah, it feels pretty hopeless to you. I wouldn't blame you for that. Even, even though Nehemiah is correcting the people, it leaves all of us as readers with a sense that if this happened so many times in Israel's past, if this cycle just continues to happen over and over again, what real hope is there for the future, right? Are we just bound to this endless sort of sin cycle? 
do we just have to bring this in every five years to get re-glued again and feel bad about ourselves? But I think that's the ultimate point because the real hope is Jesus. You know, most scholars actually believe that Nehemiah is the last chronological book in the Bible along with Malachi, which is sort of his companion prophet. But that chronologically, that Nehemiah is the last thing. So what does that mean? That means that this is the last word chronologically in the Old Testament. And where does it end? It ends in the cycle of sin with, with a, a leader who we're supposed to be revering as a leader, but he's not behaving very well, is he? He's hitting people. He's pulling people's hair out because he's so frustrated at the cycle of sin, right? Not a, not a great place to end this story. But what does that also mean if it's the last word of the Old Testament? What's the next word in Scripture? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Romans says the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Think about that. The law, which these people in Nehemiah are seeking to follow, has become our tutor to what? Not make us righteous, but to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Not by what we do, but by faith. The next word after Nehemiah is Jesus, who did for us what we could never do for ourselves, what following the law could never do for us, as good as the law is. Jesus was born a virgin, born of a virgin. He, he, sit, he lived a sinless life. He offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross. He died for the sins of the world. And that's all of us. And conquering death, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He sits on the right hand of God the Father. He reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he serves as our high priest. By God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved from sin and its penalty, which is inevitable death. Through Jesus, what do we have? We have a way out of this predictable, endless cycle of sin because we have the gift of the Holy Spirit who helps us grow more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And there will come a day, my friends, when that cycle is completely over, when we are made perfect. But until that day, we still need correction. We need to give it. We need to receive it. We need the correction of God's word. We need the correction of the Holy Spirit. We need the correction of each other. Nehemiah does not come back to Jerusalem and go, I'm done with these people. He doesn't give up on God's people. He does not give up on God's work. And we shouldn't either. So Jesus takes a look at our sin, the sin that's in us, and he doesn't just glue us back together and shame us by saying, I know you're, you're going to goof up again, so I'll see you in a little bit. I'll see you in a little bit. He does a healing work in us. A work that the law could never, ever do but we need to let him do it. We need to own our cracks and our mars and our flaws and let him do his corrective work in us if we want to truly rebuild in God's way. Our church has to be a place where we freely receive and give correction for the sake of Christ so that we can join together with Paul's words in Romans 7. Let these words wash over you at the end of this study. So the trouble is not with the law, for it's spiritual and it's good. The trouble's with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I do what is right. I know I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. 
Instead, I do what I hate. What a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? But thanks be to God, the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, who will save us? Who will save us from the cycle of sin and death? Who will save us, Lord? Is you, the one who has already come and comes again and again to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who comes and says, I'm not just going to glue you back together, but I'm here to make you new. That if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has now come. Lord, until you bring us into your glory and make us whole, we know that we need correction. Correction from you and correction from one another. So would you give us boldness to be the church that you've called us to be? Would you give us boldness that when convicted, that we turn to you, not defensively, not out of shame, but we say, thank you, Jesus. Help me. I desire to follow you. Lord, would you give us the wisdom to rebuild our lives, our spiritual lives, our church, in the way that you call us to. And Lord, we thank you that even when the words of this world leave us hopeless, that is not the final word. You have the final word through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus.